Hi, my name is Andrew Perry. I'm a resident physician in the Department of Internal Medicine at Barnes-Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. Today I'm going to be visiting with Dr. Mike Rich to talk about the use of stress testing. Uh, this is a common question that comes up in the clinic and also here on the wards. We'll focus our discussion primarily upon you know, who should be getting stress testing, uh, talking about our pretest probability, a brief discussion about Bayes' theorem, brief overview on what types of stress testing modalities are available. And then we'll wrap it up with a couple of cases to highlight some of the principles that we'll have discussed. So um, what do you want me to say by way of introduction, or are you going to introduce me? Oh, let's just have you start by saying your name and, uh, and your title. I'm Dr. Mike Rich. I'm a cardiologist at Washington University in St. Louis, and we're going to talk about stress testing, particularly diagnostic stress testing in individuals with suspected coronary artery disease. Yeah, thanks for meeting with me today, Dr. Rich. And so first is kind of the broader question of who should go for stress testing. So stress testing is um, typically used to try to decide whether a specific patient is likely or unlikely to have coronary artery disease. So often this is going to be an individual perhaps with some risk factors for coronary disease and some symptoms that have raised the question of whether or not they have coronary disease. And um, as a general principle, uh, individuals who have very low likelihood of having coronary disease, such as a healthy uh, young person with a paucity of risk factors and obviously atypical chest pain, um, should not have stress testing. And conversely, an individual who uh, has a very high likelihood of having coronary disease, such as an older person, typically an older male, with uh, multiple risk factors and classic uh, exertional angina, has a very high likelihood of having coronary disease, and therefore um, stress testing to decide whether they have coronary disease or not is typically not going to be helpful. And the reason is that even if the stress test is negative, it's more likely to be a false negative rather than a true negative. Now, as we will discuss later on, um, that type of patient might still benefit from stress testing, but it would not be primarily to determine whether they have coronary disease or not, but rather to determine how severe their coronary disease is and whether or not they might benefit from additional testing, such as uh, coronary angiography. Okay. Perfect. So I guess let's spend a minute just and talk about that, how we estimate someone's pretest probability. So like the ACC AHA guidelines, as I have over here, you know, has this table for us that, you know, based on age ranges for men and women, and then it, div and it divides them up into, you know, say a man who's between the ages 50, 59, whether he has typical angina pectoris or atypical angina, and then it gives you like a low, intermediate, or high probability. So I guess what are like the features? How do you define, per se, like a typical angina versus an atypical angina versus non-anginal chest pain? Right. So to follow up on my previous comments, um, the ideal person for uh, a stress test is somebody who has a pretest, that is before you do the stress test, likelihood of having coronary disease that is somewhere in the range of perhaps 20% to 80%. So what is that population? And um, as uh, Dr. Perry was uh, suggesting, we have some uh, tools to 
try to provide some insight into the likelihood that a given individual has coronary disease. And we look at age and gender. The older a person is, the more likely um, they are to have coronary disease. Men, in general, are more likely to have coronary disease than women. And then we also look at the nature of the symptoms. So um, classic angina, where somebody has exertional chest discomfort, pressure, tightness, heaviness, that comes on consistently with uh, exertion at some level. So a person might say, well, every time I um, walk up this hill near my house, I get this discomfort in my chest, and it resolves when I rest for a couple of minutes. Uh, and then if, uh, if I do the same thing again the next day, I'll have the same symptoms. So that's, that's classic angina, and, and that um, is consistent with, with coronary disease. Um, an, another type of uh, symptoms might be uh, some chest discomfort that has some features um, that are typical of, of uh, coronary disease, and uh, uh, but others that are not. So, um, for example, the symptoms may not come on um, only with exertion. My person might have similar symptoms at rest or at night, um, or uh, they might not be described as. Uh, as a, as a pressure or a heaviness, might be some other description of it, maybe a, somewhat of a burning quality, but can't really be sure that it's not uh, coming from, uh, from, from the heart. And then there's a third type of chest pain, which is clearly atypical and unlikely to be coronary disease. And this would be uh, uh, chest pain that, that um, is sharp in nature, focal, one particular spot in the chest. It's reproducible by uh, uh, palpating that area um, and uh, often will be pleuritic. person takes a deep breath and, and that aggravates the, the pain. That type of pain is uh, is is very unlikely to be due to coronary ischemia. And then the fourth category would be the person who has no symptoms whatsoever. So they don't describe any uh, uh, chest discomfort or other symptoms that might be considered an angina uh, equivalent. And so we take the, um, the, the nature of the person's symptoms in combination with their age and gender and try to come up with a pretest likelihood that the person has the disease. And just to give an example, um, a 50% pretest likelihood, which would be an ideal candidate for considering a stress test, might be a middle-aged male with a couple of risk factors and symptoms that are um, possibly anginal in nature. Uh, or alternatively, it might be an older woman with fairly typical angina, also in the context of a couple of risk factors. And those would be individuals who um, would likely have a 50-50 chance of having coronary disease and whom therefore might benefit from stress testing. And then additionally, just as kind of a summarize, what we've been uh, kind of discussing without really outright saying it is about Bayes' theorem and using your pretest probability to then guide your testing. And really, the prevalence of your disease has a big impact on your positive predict predictive value. So could you just kind of comment on how, how we're using pretest probability in order to select our, our population of prevalence? Right. So Bayes' theorem states that for any less than perfect test, and stress testing is certainly a less than perfect test, that um, the POTS test likelihood of having the disease or not having the disease based on the results of the test is contingent upon the pretest likelihood of having the disease. So, for example, um, stress testing with imaging 
traditional stress testing, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, um, might be considered to have roughly 80 to 90% sensitivity and 80 to 90% specificity. And so if you take an individual who has a 50% pretest likelihood of having the disease and the test is positive, that will increase their post-test likelihood of having the disease to the 80 to 90% range. And similarly, if the test is negative, will reduce the likelihood of them having coronary disease, significant coronary disease, to the 10 to 20% range. So you get a nice separation of that 50% um, pretest likelihood to um, high likelihood or low likelihood after um, completing the test. Conversely, if you take an individual who has a very low pretest likelihood, such as a young healthy person with atypical chest pain and a paucity of risk factors, and you do the stress test, if it's negative, then you've confirmed that they, in fact, have a very low likelihood of having the disease. However, if it's positive, then because of Bayes' theorem and this issue of pretest likelihood and the impact of that on uh, interpretation of the result, if the test is positive, it still is more likely that it's a false positive than a true positive. And this, unfortunately, can then precipitate a cascade of additional testing or perhaps initiation of, of therapies when, in fact, the person doesn't really have the disease. And so that's the primary reason why um, stress testing in general should not be performed in individuals who have a quite low pretest likelihood of having the disease. As the way I look at it, for ordering now, choosing like what stress test to use, there are kind of two factors to be thinking about. First is the, the stress portion, and then two, how I monitor their response. And so first, I can either stress them by stressing them with exercise or with pharmacologically. Or, and then second, how I measure their response, either you know electrocardiographically or with some type of imaging. So I guess, can you walk us through maybe your approach to choosing uh, the appropriate stress test? There are some, several considerations. One is that if the person is able to exercise, one should always do an exercise test. And the reason for this is that you get quite a bit more information from an exercise test. First, it's physiologic as opposed to any kind of a pharmacologic, pharmacological stress test. Um, you get information about uh, that person's exercise capacity. If the test is positive, you get information about um, how much exercise it takes before the person starts having symptoms or ECG changes. And there's considerable difference um, between a stress test that is positive within the first two minutes of exercise as opposed to a person goes 10 or 15 minutes of exercise mm -hmm. and has some, uh, has some symptoms. And, and um, that also will influence the likelihood that you would pursue additional testing. So somebody has a clearly positive stress test after two minutes, um, there's a reasonable likelihood that uh, you'll proceed with uh, coronary angiography. Alternatively, if the person goes 10 or 12 minutes, then it would be reasonable to pursue a strategy of, uh, of medical management as an initial option. The next um, question is, what type of stress test? And the guidelines recommend that in an individual who has uh, a normal ECG and is not taking any medications that might influence the ECG response to stress testing, that the first test that should be performed is just an exercise ECG, an exercise 
treadmill and um, without any imaging. And um, the reason for this is that it's, uh, although uh, it's only associated with moderate sensitivity, roughly 70% or so, mm -hmm. uh, that if the person has a good exercise tolerance and the test is negative, that no further test is needed at that point. And um, alternatively, if the test is positive, then one can decide depending on how positive and how early into the testing it's positive, whether or not to follow up with um, an additional stress test with imaging to further define um, the, the location and severity of ischemia, or in some cases, perhaps proceed directly to coronary angiography. The, um, the exercise stress test uh, with ECG only no imaging has some important advantages. Um, most uh, significantly, it's substantially cheaper than any of the imaging uh, protocols. So uh, it uh, typically uh, runs um, on the order of a, a couple hundred dollars to do that type of a stress test, as opposed to a couple thousand dollars for any of the imaging stress tests or more. So um, that's the first choice. Uh, beyond that, um, if, if either the person uh, has an abnormal ECG uh, at baseline and therefore um, is unlikely to have a reliable stress ECG, or um, if the person has an exercise e uh, ECG and it's abnormal, then um, the next step would be to do a stress test with, with imaging. And the, um, the possible types of stress tests is, uh, is expanding and now includes um, stress testing with PET or MRI or even CT but for purposes of this discussion, I'm going to limit it to um, the more traditional stress echo or stress nuclear um, types of studies. And uh, between those two, there are really four options, an exercise echo, a pharmacologic echo, typically with dobutamine, a stress nuclear study with exercise, or a pharmacological nuclear study, often also referred to as a myocardial perfusion imaging, or MPI. And of these four options, in experienced centers, they have roughly equal sensitivity and specificity, again, in the 80 to 90% range, and predictive accuracy. And so in terms of the, the results of the stress or interpretation of the results of the stress, there's little to choose between those four different options. Um, so how do we decide? Uh, I think that, um, that first, as I mentioned already, always best to uh, perform an exercise test if the patient is able to exercise the next question is, well, should we do an, an echo or uh, a, a nuclear study? And I think that, um, that in most cases, the echo test is, is preferred. And the reasons for this are that, number one, you get the additional information from the echocardiogram, including uh, information about um, uh, wall motion at, uh, at rest, um, wall thickness, uh, atrial size, uh, valve, uh, any problems with valve function, and, uh, and so forth. And in fact, often in individuals who you um, want to do a stress test, you may often think that, uh, you may also think that you want to get an echocardiogram. So to some extent, um, a, a stress echo, quote, kills two birds with one stone. For the reasons I mentioned, in most cases, you'd like to get 
uh, an echo study, um, in part because you get more information from it, but also uh, it's, uh, it does not involve any radiation exposure, um, so that's a significant advantage. It's uh, somewhat cheaper than nuclear studies, and it's also quicker. So uh, a typical stress echo, um, all of the images and so forth can be completed within, uh, within no more than an hour, um, including the post-test uh, observation period, whereas with nuclear studies, uh, it can uh, take several hours. And so for an individual, for example, who's, who's working and trying to schedule this stress test in, uh, during working hours, it's less time off of, off of work. And so that um, can be an important advantage from the patient uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. And so we've kind of talked about the, the asymptomatic patient and then patients with symptoms who are in this intermediate probability. What about like the very, very high risk patients? Are there, is there anyone that you just say, you know, no stress test, straight to cath? And what are those patients like? Right. So I think that individuals who have um, high risk symptoms, uh, um, such as uh, acute coronary syndrome, and this is not somebody who's coming in with stable angina. They're having symptoms that are progressing and occurring at rest, and you have a high enough uh, pretest likelihood that you think that they uh, almost certainly have coronary disease, that um, in those cases, uh, uh, omitting the stress testing and proceeding straight to another type of imaging would be reasonable. And um, uh, waffling a little bit here because I think that... Um, that an alternative to coronary angiography would be uh, uh, traditional invasive coronary angiography would be um, coronary CT angiography, which uh, is uh, significantly less invasive, has high sensitivity, and this is a situation where it might be overly sensitive. um, And uh, uh, if, however, coronary CTA is negative, it has a very high, close to 100% negative predictive value. So if the C- CT angiogram is negative, then the likelihood that the individual, and, and the image quality is good, the likelihood then the individual has significant coronary disease is quite low, and you can, in, in such situations, avoid proceeding to, uh, to, coronary, to invasive coronary angiography. Um, but if that's uh, not a good option in a given case, then yes, I think there are situations in which the risk is high enough that uh, I would proceed um, straight to coronary angiography. And again, this is going to be uh, a significant variability amongst cardiologists of what the threshold might be between um, going for stress test first or CTA or um, coronary angiography. Okay, I think we've had a, a good discussion so far. Let's, uh, I have a couple of cases that I want to discuss with you that I'll probably highlight some of these issues here uh, in practice. So, for example, here's a patient that I saw in clinic just a couple of months ago. And actually, her history kind of goes back you know, a few years back, so we'll start there. So she initially presented to a 38-year-old female. Uh, she's actually an immigrant uh, from Bosnia. She presented, she was complaining of some squeezing chest pain that was radiating to her left arm. She said when she got this kind of pain, it would be associated with shortness of breath, some dizziness and sweating, kind of variable onset, you know, with activity, sometimes without activity. Uh, She's a smoker. She also reports that her sister had a stroke when she was in her 20s. I don't have any details about that. She initially went to the emergency department. They checked an EKG, which was unremarkable, and they checked some troponins, which were negative. So in this case, 
is there a role for stress testing and and uh, and what would that be? Yes, I think so. So um, we have uh, a relatively young woman who presents with fairly typical uh, chest pain and associated symptoms of shortness of breath and diaphoresis. Uh, one atypical feature is that the symptoms sometimes um, are not associated with, with exertion, and so uh, it's less of the classic angina, perhaps, in that regard. But she has some risk factors. Um, she's a smoker, which is uh, an important risk factor, particularly for women, and um, some positive family history for uh, uh, atherosclerotic disease, perhaps a stroke in her 20s, which might not have been due to atherosclerosis. But in any case, cardiovascular disease in the family at, at uh, young age. We're not told anything about other risk factors such as her lipid profile or blood pressure or diabetes. Um, and uh, but, but even without those that information, I think that um, she probably is uh, in the 20% or higher threshold that we discussed earlier, and I therefore think that uh, doing a stress test would be reasonable. If her EKG is normal, then I think that starting with an exercise treadmill test would be reasonable. If her EKG is uh, at baseline not completely normal, then a stress test with imaging would be reasonable. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so she, uh, she there in the emergency department, she went for a stress echocardiogram. And she performed seven METs, and it was reported as being negative for ischemia in the, in the comments below. Her Duke treadmill score was reported being a six. And so she was discharged at home. Uh, actually, can we just take a second and maybe talk about what that means, you know, having exercised seven METs, and then what is a Duke treadmill score? Right, so... Um... Seven METs uh, for a 38-year-old is relatively low exercise tolerance. Um, if the person was uh, in their 60s, then seven METs, which basically means they went seven minutes on the Bruce, uh, Bruce protocol on the exercise treadmill. Um, there's a close correlation between the number of minutes that a person exercise and the number of METs, which is the metabolic equivalence of exercise performed. And the Duke treadmill score is a simple algorithm for assessing risk based on three factors uh, during, the, during the stress test. The first is the number of minutes performed on uh, Bruce protocol. So that's equivalent to the number of METs here. That's seven. And then from that, you subtract five times the maximum ST segment deviation, either depression or elevation, in any lead except for AVR. So five times that um, is subtracted from the, the METs or the minutes of exercise. And then additionally, you subtract four times the uh, any symptoms that the person has. If they're asymptomatic, that's a zero. If they have some discomfort, but it's not limiting, in other words, that's not the reason why they stop exercising, then that's uh, one point. And if they have symptoms that are fairly typical of angina and are the reason why the person stops exercising, then that's worth two points. So, um, uh, and you multiply that by four and subtract that from the METs as well. So it, in this particular case, uh, um, she exercised for seven METs, and um, we're not told whether there were any EKG changes 
there except were it was yeah. negative for ischemia, mm -hmm. so we're not subtracting anything for that. And uh, we're not told whether she had any chest pain, um, but we'll assume basically that she didn't, and we're not subtracting anything for that. So that would actually give a DTS, a Duke Treadmill score of 7. Here it says 6. Um, so same ballpark. And then interpretation of that number, the higher the score, the better. And generally, uh, a score of five or higher is considered low risk. A score of um, minus 10 to plus four is considered intermediate risk. And a score of minus 11 or lower is considered high risk for having uh, significant or severe coronary disease. Okay. So that was about six years ago. She goes home and over the next you know six years, she continues to have this chest pain intermittently off and on. She presented to me you know, two months ago with, a, with now a more recent, now a mon one month history of the chest pain just becoming much more worse. Uh, she you know, was starting to have it more at rest, just being more severe in intensity as well. She went to the ER actually and and they put her over to observation, didn't want to wait for the stress test to be done in the morning, so she went home. Noted on her EKG taken there, though, were noticed some new Q waves that had developed in V1 through V3. Um, so from this point, what would your be decision point about whether, you know, go for stress testing, or maybe would you even be more aggressive for her at this point? So I think that we have a variety of options here. I think that um, that... The new Q waves are concerning uh, since they suggest that she may have had an interim myocardial infarction, anteroceptal myocardial infarction. Um, she's having worsening symptoms, which um, if they're, the, the nature of the symptoms is similar to what she reported previously, um, they can be interpreted at least as being consistent with uh, exertional angina. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that um, that one can take three possible approaches. First would be to do another stress test. We have a previous stress test perhaps for comparison, so that might be helpful. Uh, second would be to go straight to a coronary CT angiogram, um, which would provide some information about uh, her likelihood of having severe coronary disease. And the third option, which I'm sure that some cardiologists would support in this particular situation, and which I, I think would be reasonable also, would be just to go straight to catheterization, given um, the severity of her symptoms, the progression, and the new uh, ECG findings, just to define her coronary anatomy and uh, make management decisions based upon that. So I think any of those options would be reasonable. Okay. So she came to me in the urgent uh, urgent care clinic and a couple of days later, and I saw her and I set her up for a stress echocardiogram. Uh, which she went and performed, and she performed 10 METs on the echo. And I got a call from the cardiologist saying that it was markedly positive for ischemia in the LAD territory uh, and recommended that you know, I pursue it up, follow it up with a calf. Uh, so she gets admitted to the hospital for a cardiac calf, and which demonstrates you know, mild disease uh, in all three vessels, you know, 20% lesions in the LAD, the circumflex, and the, and the RCA. Uh, which was a little unexpected for me. So maybe you can comment on like how this uh, the stress testing, you know, leading to this result, and then what the cath shows, and kind of how this all maybe fits in together. So I'd like to just return to the decision point about how to manage the patient after um, she has the positive stress test. So she goes for ten mets, 
um, and uh, has what's described as a markedly positive test for ischemia in the LAD distribution. I think that we have three options. One would be simply to uh, uh, initiate medical therapy if she's not already on beta blocker, uh, make sure that her risk factors are under good control, as we discussed previously, and see how her symptoms respond to um, more aggressive medical management. The second option would, again, be to do a coronary CTA, or, again, the option of going straight to coronary angiography. And so I think that any of these three approaches would be reasonable. In this case, the decision was made um, most likely due to the fact that the test was read as markedly positive in the LAD distribution. So this is, this is worrisome, and she has additionally the, the new Q waves in the same distribution. So there's a relatively high concern that she may have very severe disease and that an intervention might be appropriate. So the decision is made to take her to, uh, to the cath lab, where, in fact, she is found to have no significant epicardial coronary disease. So how do we interpret that finding? So first of all, um, does this mean that the stress test was a false positive? And I would say the answer is not necessarily, um, particularly in a woman. Uh -huh. She could have small vessel disease, um, which is giving um, both symptoms and an abnormal stress test in the absence of significant obstructive epicardial uh, coronary disease, in which case it's not really a false positive. It's false positive in the sense that she didn't have obstructive coronary disease, but her symptoms are still truly um, ischemic and uh, will uh, likely respond to conventional medical management, beta blockers most, uh, most importantly. Beyond that, though, there is a possibility that her symptoms aren't ischemic at all, and if that's the case, then it is a false positive test. And uh, as, uh, as we discussed earlier, um, the specificity of stress testing is in the 80 to 90% range. And what that means is that there's a 10 to 20% likelihood of a false positive. So it's not trivial. We see false positives not uncommonly. And, uh, uh, and, and again, that's part of the reason why um, we use Bayes' theorem and the pretest probability of, of, uh, of having disease in deciding whether or not to do a stress test in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just kind of circle back, I, I pulled up her the report from her stress echo uh, that I had sent her for, and there on the EKG, there were no ischemic changes noted on there. So yeah, her Duke treadmill score would probably be right around six of where it was right. before. And so as you said, maybe some medical management would, would be reasonable at that time, given that she's in that low risk category based on there. Right. Okay. Uh, and then finally, one, uh, one other case, it's a, it's a little different, but it highlights uh, another a utility for stress testing that we often encounter here on the wards. So this is a 64-year-old male who was admitted to the hospital. He has a history of a coronary artery bypass graft in uh, 2015, and he's presenting with unstable angina. So chest pain at rest, negative uh, biomarkers of troponins, and his EKG was stable as compared to his prior ones. He recently just even had a repeat cath, you know, two months prior to admission. It showed that his, his Lima graft to the LED was patent. He had an occluded superior vein graft to the OM branch and a total occlusion of the RCA distal to the RV1 branch, uh, which had been chronically there in the past. So for this patient, you know, known coronary disease, status post bypass grafting, 
how, what is the utility of a stress test uh, for this guy? So this falls into a different indication for performing a stress test. So we're no longer doing the stress test to rule out coronary disease. This person has known coronary disease, and their pretest likelihood of having coronary disease is 100%. They have known coronary disease. So the rationale for doing a stress test in this particular situation is to assess the severity of the disease and how limiting it is. In other words, we're interested in um, how much exercise does it take before the person develops symptoms, and how severe is the ischemia that they have in response to exercise. And that is um, often an important uh, uh, piece of information in deciding whether or not to pursue um, more aggressive medical therapy for management of the patient's disease versus um, proceeding with uh, repeat coronary angiography. So, for example, if the person uh, gets on the treadmill and goes seven or eight minutes and has mild symptoms in a mild to moderately positive stress test, then it would be very reasonable to uh, to increase medical therapy to try to control the person's symptoms. If, on the other hand, the person goes two minutes, um, has three or four millimeters of ST segment depression and marked uh, chest discomfort, then that would be somebody that it would be reasonable to proceed with uh, coronary angiography. In this particular case, I think that um, the fact that uh, the person had a cath two months previously, which did not show any revascularizable myocardium, would at least, um, in my view, make it less likely that a stress test is going to be helpful. I think that uh, uh, if the person is not on maximal medical therapy, that that would be the first thing that I would recommend in this particular situation. Uh, if the person is on maximal medical therapy, then the question will be, how are we going to interpret the results of a stress test? If it's, uh, if it's positive, are we going to do another cath? How are we going to use the information? And I think that it would be uh, a difficult decision, given that there was a cath two months previously that um, failed to show uh, revascularizable uh, coronary disease. Okay. And would your, would your approach change if there were some, you know, mild biomarker elevations or some nonspecific ST or T wave changes for him? Not necessarily. The, the approach might change if you didn't tell me he had a cath two months ago. If, okay. If we didn't have that cath two months ago, then I think that it would be very reasonable to do a stress test. In, in this particular individual. So he's having uh, increasing symptoms that are described as unstable angina with negative biomarkers, stable ECG. Um, and so the question in this case is, is this really ischemia? And if so, uh, how severe ischemia is he having? In that case, I think it would be reasonable to do a stress test as the next step in the evaluation. And if it's markedly positive, proceed with, with angiography. Um, the situation is modified if, in fact, the uh, biomarkers, troponins, are elevated, and the higher they are, the more likely I am going to recommend proceeding straight to coronary angiography. And similarly, if the ECG has uh, shows new changes consistent with ischemia, um, how severe are they? 
how extensive are they, and those are factors that are going to um, uh, be taken in consideration in deciding whether to go straight to angiography or uh, whether to proceed with stress testing. In this situation, um, coronary CTA is, is, uh, is probably less likely to be helpful, although um, in some cases it might be useful, so that would be an alternative, but it would be lower down on my, uh, on my list anyway of, uh, of options of how to further evaluate the patient. Well, thank you very much for your time today in discussing uh, stress testing with us, okay? Certainly, my pleasure.